just for everyone just to settle back and have your needs met. And I think you believe, if you read the scriptures, you understand what the church really is supposed to be. We're supposed to be more like that battleship. The text today in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, uh, gives us the continuing account of the gospel spreading into the Gentile world, and now it explodes in great numbers in the city of Antioch. And we're going to look at this church in Antioch, this church that starts up there in this city of Antioch. And the people in Antioch are given a name. In verse 26, I'm going to start in the middle of the passage. In verse 26, the people in Antioch are given a name. They stand out in this very pagan city called Antioch. They stand out, and so they're given a name. And the name they're given is Christian. Uh, As I thought about standing out, I remembered a story from when I was a kid in Ecuador. And any of you who know me know that soccer is my favorite sport. And I played soccer in Ecuador and went to a lot of soccer games in Ecuador. And I remember one particular game that me and my best friend Tim went to. Uh, It was actually on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we didn't even know if we could get tickets to it. It was actually the final of the, of the Ecuadorian championship. Whoever won this game go, is, is the champion of, of, the, of the season. And we said, well, let's just go see if we can get tickets. So me and Tim run up there. Um, the team that was playing, one of the teams was from the coast, from the, the biggest city in Ecuador called Guayaquil. And it was the most famous team in Ecuador and the most popular team called Barcelona. And uh, the Barcelona team had a very bright yellow colored uniform. And the team we were going to cheer for that day wasn't our favorite team, but it was the other team from the city of Quito there. And it was called Deportivo Quito, and their colors were blue and red. So we put on blue and red because we were going to cheer for the team from Quito. So we go there last minute, and we get tickets, and we go into the stadium. Now let me explain a little bit about about soccer fans, okay? Maybe you've heard news stories. Um, The soccer fans can get a little bit rowdy. And there's these uh, groups at soccer games called barras. Now a barra... Basically, is a fan club. But I don't want you to get the wrong image here. We think of fan clubs as when you mail in your fan club membership and you get the little card and they send you stickers and decals and shirts from time to time. No, no, no. This is more like a gang than, a, than what, what you're familiar with with a fan club. And these barras can be very violent, very loud, and they sit in big sections of the stadium all together, all wearing the same colors. They set off smoke bombs, have giant flags, and they chant and sing all game long. Well, Tim and I, in our blue and red outfitted clothing, buy these tickets last minute, go into the stadium, and uh, the stadium in in Ecuador, they're sectioned off, depending on what ticket price you paid, you're in a certain section, and you're separated from the other section by barbed wire, okay, so they don't want you going into the other sections here, You, you have to understand a little bit different culture, all right, and so we walk in with our tickets, and we turn the corner, and all we see is a sea of yellow, we have walked into Barcelona's Barra. And we walk in with our blue and our red, and we stand out, quite obviously. And we we walk in there, and we realize what we've done. We can't climb over the barbed wire. It's the only tickets we could afford. And we're there in Barcelona's Barra. So we just found a nice little place to sit with all these people just staring at us. And uh, matter of fact, the team we were going for actually scored the first goal in that game. And we just kind of sat there and went, you know, while all these people just stared at us. Actually, their team ended up scoring a goal later as well. And if they tied the game, they ended up winning the championship. But it got really confusing, and there was a riot. And they ran, Ray rushed the field, and so did the other team. We got out of there real quick before we got killed. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. And, but we stood out. It was obvious when we walked in that we 
were representing somewhat, some, a team different than the one that they were representing. It was obvious that our loyalties were in some other place. And what happens in Antioch is the gospel comes in, and Antioch is this city that's a kind of a melting pot of culture and religion. All kinds of different religious influences, all kinds of different cultures. It was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. It only followed um, Rome and Alexandria. It's got about 800,000 people in this city. And uh, the city was also known for its beauty. It was built, um, it was planned out so that the breeze would blow through the streets. It was built in a grid pattern. It was a planned city. It had beautiful architecture. It was well known as being a beautiful city on the river. Uh, but the only thing that matched its beauty was its immorality. Because right beside the city was a temple to the goddess Daphne. And the way you worshipped the goddess Daphne was to go into the cult prostitutes who were outside of the temple. And so immorality, especially sexual immorality, was rampant in the city of Antioch. So it's a cultural melting pot, lots of uh, relativity, and, and, and lots of immorality. It's not much different than our culture today here in America in the direction that we're heading. And so, but the gospel comes in, and so don't get worried if you see news stories and you get frustrated at, at different immoralities that are surfacing in our nation. That, that's not a cause for worry, necessarily, because you know what? The gospel's a gajillion times more powerful than any immoral influences in our nation, and it can still invade, it can still take over, just like it did in Antioch. But there were some people in Antioch that were no longer acting like everybody else. There were some people in Antioch that looked a lot different. They were like us walking into that barra. And so the people in Antioch had to give these guys a name. Now, I'm sure the Barcelona fans looked at us and just called us idiots, all right? But the people in Antioch looked at these people who were believing in the gospel message, and we're going to look at it here in a second, and, and they give them a name in verse 26 of chapter 11, and they give them the name Christian. They give them the name Christian. So we're going to talk about how important that name is this morning. I really want us to think about what the name means. The word Christian, believe it or not, only appears three times in Scripture. Do you know that? The word Christian only appears three times in Scripture. Here, also in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, and in Acts 26, verse 28. Uh, the church itself usually described itself as believers or brothers. Um, the church was also referred to as those of the way. And um, the term Christian wasn't a term they necessarily used for themselves. It was actually used by outsiders to refer to Christians. Now historians and commentators are, are divided on whether or not the word actually was, was used as, a, as sort of a word of derision. To make fun of the church. But it literally means, if you break it down, Christos... the of Christian, Christ means Messiah, and the Latin word Ianus, which is the last part of the word Christian, uh, means to be, to belong to, to be identified with. So the word Christian means to belong to or to be identified with Christ. It could also mean to be of the household of Christ. And so that's what these people meant when they looked at the church in Antioch. They said, those people belong to Christ. Those people are identified with Christ. Those people are of that household of Christ. And so the church, whether or not it was meant as a term for derision or scorn, the church embraced it. Because yes, that is exactly who we are. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are reborn into a new family. We are part of the household of Christ. We belong to, we become bondservants, slaves 
of God and we belong to Christ. And that's exactly what's happening here in Antioch as the gospel comes in. But I want to bring us up to speed real quick here on what's happening here in the book of Acts. If you remember, we're in kind of a transition phase here as the gospel changes I mean, the gospel doesn't change. As the, as the church shifts from just being Jerusalem-centered and just a Jewish body of believers to becoming more worldwide and becoming a body of believers that also includes Gentiles. And for the last three weeks, we studied Acts chapter 10, which is the story of, of Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius. And Cornelius was a, um, a God-fearing Roman soldier, but he was a Gentile. And when Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius, it's a huge step. A huge barrier is being broken here. The Bible says that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has come down through Christ on the cross. And Peter realizes for the first time that Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus tells him to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, also includes Gentiles, people who are not Jews. And so Peter has done that. He's taken the gospel to Cornelius. We've studied that for the past three weeks. And in the first 18 verses of chapter 11, Peter just sort of recaps that. He retells the story. And the reason he has to retell the story is because some people in the church in Jerusalem have heard that Peter has taken the gospel and gone into the home of a Gentile. And the church in Jerusalem says, wait a second, what's going on here? And, and so um, the, the, the people of a particular party called the circumcision party. Now let me explain that real quick. Those are, those are Christians in the church, Jewish believers in the church who believed you still had to follow all the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. Those people in particular were very upset that Peter defiled himself by going into the home of a Gentile. So Peter comes back, he explains what happened, he defends himself by appealing to the fact that God's the one who did this. God orchestrated it. God gave the vision. God gave Cornelius a vision. God made it happen. The Spirit told him to go. And he also brought with him six witnesses who can testify to the fact that the, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius in his home in the exact same way that it fell upon all the other Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. So Peter sums it up in verse 17. He said, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter said, I'm not standing in God's way. If God wants the gospel to spread out to all people in all, in, all the ends of the earth, no matter if they're Jew or not, it doesn't, I'm not going to stand in God's way. And so Peter tells that to the church. When the church hears it, <clears throat> when they hear his defense, they got silent. And then it says they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted a repentance that leads unto life. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads unto life. And so now they've understood. The Jerusalem church and Peter, they understand that Acts 1-8 is for all people and not just for the Jews. So that brings us up to speed to where we're at right now. And now the gospel message is about to explode on the Gentile scene. We see mass numbers of Gentiles coming to the Lord here in this passage today. We begin to see the church realizing its missionary potential, that if it sends people out, it can reach lots of people. We also see a bit of a shift here. Jerusalem has been the center of operation for the church up to this point in Acts. But now Antioch becomes a center for missionary enterprise. For the rest of the book of Acts, Antioch is the central point for the gospel as it spreads out to other areas in the world. 
So I want us to focus in this morning, though, on verse 26, where it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want us to search, uh, look at this passage here, and draw out some truths. And so I'm going to ask a question. The title of the message today is, A People Called Christian. But here's the question I want to ask. What should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? What is a church... Who, that truly is a people that belongs to Christ, what should it look like? Because that's what it means, a people who belong to Christ. As I was thinking about that belonging to Christ and how important that name is and, and that the name means we belong to Christ, uh, I was trying to think of an illustration for the kids, and, and I thought of one just this morning right before I came in. Now, ha- how many kids in here have, have seen the movie Toy Story? Have you seen Toy Story? Adults, you can raise your hands too. Have you seen Toy Story? Did you like Toy Story? I thought that was great. You know, now you look at it and the graphics aren't quite as good as the animations that come out now, but, but it still was a great story. And then there's Toy Story 2. Now, do you remember the key moment in both movies? There's a key moment in both movies. In, in, in Toy Story uh, 1, the first one, what does Woody have written on his boot? Y'all remember? What does he have? He has the name of Andy. Why? Because he belongs to Andy. So I've got a toy here this morning. This is, this is Dora, the explorer. Okay. Hola, Dora. And this is Dora. And on the bottom of her foot, it says Emma Kate. Because Dora here, Dora the explorer, belongs to Emma Kate. Now, if you remember uh, later on in the movie, uh, you know, Woody's all upset. Because this crazy new character, Buzz, has come onto the scene. And there's a key moment that really pushes Woody over the edge. And that's when Buzz lifts up his foot and says, Hey, you know, your, your owner has, has put his name on me or something like that. I can't remember. But he, that's a key moment. Buzz also belongs to Woody, I mean, to, to Andy. And it upsets Woody. Kind of what's happening here. The Gentiles have also been included. The Gentiles also have the name of Christ on them. And then in Toy Story 2, you remember that one? Uh, Woody kind of gets... Um, taken away, uh, he gets stolen, and, and he, they want to sell him to a museum, and, and the other toys that are going to get sold to the museum convince him he doesn't need to go back to Andy. And there's a key moment in the story when, the, when the, the person's fixing up Woody, and he paints over Andy's name on Woody's foot. And so Woody's convinced he's not going to go back to Andy, and then when Buzz and the rest of them show up to rescue Woody, he says, no, I'm not going to go. But then he changes his mind when he begins to think about Andy, and he scratches off that paint, and he sees the name He sees who he belongs to. And that's what's happening here, is that the people of Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they belong to Christ. And so they have a name, and the name is they're Christians. And Christian means a people who belong to Christ. So I'm going to look at this passage here and pull out some things about this passage that help us see um, what a church that truly belongs to Christ looks like. Now, before we get there, before we get to point one, which is already up, so you can go ahead and fill in the blanks in your notes if you want to. Before we get there, I want us to kind of look at this passage. It starts in, in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, the last time we heard about Stephen was when? Way back in Acts chapter 8. So why is Luke bringing us back to that moment? Well, I think he's bringing us back to that moment for a couple of reasons. First of all, he wants to throw a, show us a thematic and, and logical parallel between what happened 
in the rest of Acts chapter 8. You remember that? Philip takes the gospel to Samaria because of the persecution. Takes it to Samaria. And what does the Jerusalem church do? They send Peter and John to confirm that they have received the gospel. And that's what happens. And now in this passage, some unnamed Christians are taking the gospel to people in Antioch. And when news of it comes to the church in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas to check it out. So there's a thematic and logical parallel. But the other reason is, is I believe there's a chronological parallel here. Luke, the, the gospel's beginning to go like this. So Luke's a great storyteller, and he's, got a, he's going to follow this stream first. And he follows Philip and Samaria, and then Peter going to the coastal cities, and then talking to Cornelius. And then he goes, but at the same time that was happening, over here, the gospel is going to Antioch. And so there's a chronological parallel as well. And there's something I want us to see in the fact that there's a chronological parallel here. I want us to see that God used divine revelation to get Peter into the homes of the Gentiles and share the gospel with Gentiles. But over here, there's some unnamed Christians that do the same thing. A lot of times we think that the name, the people, the, the, the ones who have the labels are the, one, the only people that can do the church work. But in reality, God uses thousands, millions of unnamed believers who do very bold and courageous things for his kingdom. They never get their name in lights. And you know what? A lot of times we do view the church as a cruise ship. So we can sit back and let the captain and his crew do whatever they want to do. But in reality, the church is not that way. We all have a job on a battleship. And there's going to be some of us out here that people know about and they hear about. But there's going to be others of you out there that go out and you share the gospel with people and you love on people and you, and you do the tiny things that no one ever notices. So God uses the unnamed and the named. And so he used Peter to get the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was important. And it was important for confirmation because Peter was the leader of the church at that time. So they needed to see that the leader of the church had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. But over here in Antioch, there's some guys who we don't even know their names. And they too have decided to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, Spoke to the Hellenists also. That means the Greeks, the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now when this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now Barnabas was the perfect choice. We studied Barnabas a while back, and this passage gives us a lot of insight into Barnabas. We're not going to rehash all that. But Barnabas was the perfect choice because he's a bridge builder. Okay, uh, Barnabas was the perfect person to send to this melting pot environment. Barnabas was the kind of person who could see God's grace at work. Barnabas was the kind of person who would encourage people to hang in there steadfast. In this passage, we see that Barnabas was a very humble man. He realizes as the numbers grow that, that he can't do this all on his own. So he goes and he finds Saul to come and help him be the pastor of this church in Antioch. And the Bible says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So Barnabas was the perfect choice, the perfect man for this job. But I want us to come back to our question. What should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? What should it look like? Now when I started working on this sermon, I originally made the point say, it is a place where whatever. And I just, it just bugged me because the church is not a place. <laughs> and we think of the church as a place. We're going to the church today. Can I come to your church this week? The church isn't a place. The church is a people. And so I intentionally changed it from place to people as I did the notes. Because a church isn't a place you come to. It is a people, first of all, who are radically and unashamedly Christ-centered. 
radically and unashamedly Christ-centered. The Bible says here that when they went, in verse 20 it says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, doing what? Preaching the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of who believed turned to the Lord. So they go into Antioch. I'm sure Antioch had social problems. I'm sure Antioch had lots of issues. But what do they do when they go into Antioch? They preach the Lord Jesus. The church is founded upon Christ Jesus alone. It's not about social justice, although we should seek social justice in our society. Okay? But it's not about that. Okay? It's not about just um, having good ethics. We should be ethical people because the scriptures, the fact that Jesus resides in our hearts should drive us to a whole new type of ethic. But it's not about ethics. It's not about social justice. It's about the gospel message that we are lost without Christ and we need Jesus to be saved. And so they preached the Lord Jesus and a great number who believed turn to the Lord. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel does transform and affect our morality, our ethics. It causes us to see the world differently. But the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again, and that he ascended to the Father, that gospel message is what needs to be preached. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul's saying here, you know, we can go into these cities, and we can try to debate logic and wisdom with the Greeks. Or we can go in and just do miraculous signs for the Jews. He says, but neither one of those have anything to do with the gospel. They need the gospel. And the gospel's foolishness to those who are just wanting some sort of logical debate. And it's weakness to those who want some sort of manifestation of power. And so that's applicable for the church today as well. Whatever we do as a church, we must always proclaim Christ. He's central here. We don't want to water down the Bible and its message of the cross so that we can just run off into some sort of theological or, or, or logical conversation. We want to preach the gospel. We don't want to uh, just try to seek the mystical and the emotional. We want to preach the gospel. Now, the emotions and spectacular things do happen along with the gospel. This building here is a spectacular thing, believe it or not. We were here three years ago meeting in a school. Dee and Jan were with us at that time. Walking into a school building with no idea what was going to happen. Five families. We had just had our first event, which was not really a giant success. It was an Easter egg hunt held in 30 degree weather that only a handful of people showed up to. But that morning, Toby and Kristen walked in and they heard the gospel message. And we're standing here today in a building that was given to us. On land. That was given to us because God woke a man up in the middle of the night and said, I want you to give land and money to a church out in Harbins. Having no idea who we were, calls up our Baptist Association. The, the, the director of missions calls me out. Uh, we're six months into this church plant and says, I want you to meet me out at 1522 Harbins Road. I said, sure, I'll meet you there. Greg T. Vertiller was with me at the time. <clears throat> we drove out here. 
Um, came out here at 1522 Harbin's Road, and there's this little bitty shack of a house over here. I'm going, okay, what's, what's this all about? So we're standing there going, not really knowing what's going on. Then Sid pulls in with Roger Farrell. Sid and Roger pull in, and Sid said, how would you like to have this land? And I'm looking at the house going, yeah, honestly, the school works good right now. And he goes, no, no, no. Look beyond the house. See that field out there? There are 17 acres here. It's been given to you. You've got to be kidding me. That's a God thing. That's a God thing. Only God does those type of things. And so here we are today. We can't take credit for anything that's here. Only God did this. But you know what? We can have all of this and all this land, and including the White House over there, all of this. And if we don't preach the gospel, we fail. If we don't proclaim the gospel, it's all for naught. And so the gospel message, we've got to be radically Christ-centered. I do believe God does amazing and miraculous things. And I do believe that the gospel is, in theology is important. And I do believe you can appeal to people's reason because the gospel is very rational. Okay, but unless the Holy Spirit's working in their heart, it's just foolishness. But we're going to preach the gospel at this church, and we're going to be Christ-centered in all that we do. The next point I want us to see is what should a church that is truly a people of Christ look like? Well, it's a people in whom there is visible evidence of the grace of God at work. Okay, Barnabas shows up in verse 22, and then in verse 23 it says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad. When outsiders come into this church, or to any church for that matter, what they should see is something different than just a social club. They should see something that God's doing. God's at work at that church. God's doing something at that church. They should see God's grace, his unmerited favor and blessings at work in the church. Do people see that in our church? I hope so. I hope that when people come into our church, they see that God's up to something there, and it's not just about what we're doing. Because a church can do a lot of things to get noticed. It can, it can have great programs. It can have wonderful decorations. Uh, it can have a great production um, with media that goes perfect and no, no computer glitches. It can do a lot of things. It can have great coffee outside. Wonderful. We can get the best coffee in the world and serve it out there. It can have great, great atmosphere. But anybody can do that. The, the local Shriners Club can do that. That's man stuff. What I want to know is when people walk in here, do they see Christians? Do they see people who bear the name of Christ and represent Christ in a very real way? Do they see love that is unconditional? Do they see love that, that, is, that, that doesn't see color? that doesn't see social class, that doesn't see social economic barriers? Do they see people who are willing to give up of, what, of themselves to serve others? Do they see unity amidst our diversity? Do they see authentic relationships that are deep and not superficial? Do they see generosity and sacrificial giving? Do they see God at work in people's heart? Do they see radical life transformation? Do they see something different than the rest of the world, because that's God's grace at work. That's God's grace at work in the hearts of people. And my question is, does, do people see that at Harbin's? Or do they just see what man has been able to accomplish?
What should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? Third thing I want us to see, well, I want us to see our Harbin's logo. And then I will, when they bring it back up, I will say this. It's a people contagious with the life-changing gospel message. I think they brought me some water down here, and I'm going to take advantage of it. All right, it's a people contagious with the life-changing gospel message. Look at verse 24, the second half of verse 24. And it says, And a great many people were added to the Lord. Churches that are alive are churches that are evangelistic. Churches that are alive are churches that are seeing life transformation happen in people. That's a church that bears the name of Christ. Now don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to take that when I say that a church needs to be evangelistic. I don't want to measure that by numbers. Because sometimes we go so hung up on numbers that we just try to get people in and get them to pray a prayer or something and then hope they stick around. That's not life transformation. People can come in and pray a prayer and not mean a word of it. Life transformation is investing in people's life and and, and discipling them with the gospel. The, The praying a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is just the beginning of a life transformation. And so evangelistic churches are churches that take that seriously. And you can't measure that by numbers. Because if we see two lives transformed in this church, one life transformed in this church, it's worth it. It's worth everything we've done. But if we just focus on numbers, we'll get our eyes off what really happens when the gospel invades a person's life. The gospel is to go out from this church to a lost world. It's part of our mission. Matthew 28, verse 18 and following says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the marching orders for every church. That's the marching orders for this church. It's the marching orders for the church down the road that way and a church down the road that way. That's the marching orders for every church that's ever existed. And that is to go and make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Going and making disciples. And it really means as you go, make disciples. That means in your workplace, in your family, in your homes, with your children, we should be seeing the gospel flourish and disciples being made. And so that's our mission here as well. Our mission statement is love God, love people, and spread joy to the world. And that's what the gospel is. It's the joy of knowing Christ. And we spread that gospel joy to the world. And how well are we doing? You know, I've been burdened for a while now that we're not doing as good enough a job as we can in the area of evangelism. And that's in a couple of different fronts. It's equipping you guys to be evangelistic in your your homes or in your um, places of work. And it's also us as a church doing things to try to reach more people. Uh, and so I just want to mention that in the back, I've, I've intentionally bought a bunch of these tracks, and one of them's for kids. You know what? I want us to be able to equip people and give people tools to share the gospel with people. And these are two of the best ones I've ever seen. This one's for kids who will be your king, and I've used it before with children or given it to some parents to use with their children. And this one's for <clears throat> adults. And they're ba- back there, and they're tools for you to have. But there's many other ways we can get involved. This week was the, um, I think it was May 20, or maybe it's next week, I don't know. There's uh, uh, down here at the Harvest Community House, every other month they have a, a, a big garage sale. You can buy a $25 booth and sell you know, whatever you want to sell there. And I'm thinking, why don't we just buy a booth? 
Let's get 25 bucks. Let's go buy a booth, and we're not going to sell anything. Let's just give away free water and free cookies and just love on people and share the gospel. There's many things we can do in this community better than what we're doing right now. And so I want to challenge us as a church to get more active in areas of evangelism. Number four, what should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? It is a people intent on meeting together. It's a people intent on meeting together. Verse 25, second half of verse 25. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's Saul and Barnabas. They met with the church. The church is to gather corporately in large numbers and in small numbers. It's from the temple and house to house. That's what it says in Acts. We've already studied that passage. They met in the temple and then in house to house. And so the God, I believe that a true healthy church has both large gatherings of its believers and also small gatherings of its believers on a regular basis. And look at, notice that it's after this verse that the people in Antioch were first called disciples. Okay, they see these people gathering together. They hear these people gathering together to sing and to teach and to pray. And they see them gathering in homes. And they know something's different about these people. They belong to the household of Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We should be meeting together. Attendance at our worship gatherings is important, but not because it feels good to have this place filled up, which today it feels kind of weird. This side's emptier over here than this side, so I feel like I'm kind of leaning. Uh, but it, it feels great to have this place filled up. It really does. Hopefully this afternoon it'll be packed and we're going to have to put out more chairs during our dedication service. I don't know. But that's not the reason to meet together, to make Mr. Steve up here feel good that there's people sitting in the seats. The reason we meet together is because the Bible says we need it. We need to encourage one another. We need to teach one another. We need to be there for one another. I've heard people say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And I agree. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But I'll say this. If you're a Christian, you need to go to church. Because you need other believers. You need other people around you. You need to hear the gospel being taught over and over and over again. You need to hear good doctrine being taught. You need fellowship. Next week, after the service, we're going to have our second monthly meal. So hopefully you guys will come and eat with us. Okay, we're not going to have our Bible studies after the worship service. And instead, we, we gather downstairs and just eat and fellowship and, and spend time getting to know one another. And a church that is a church that, of people that belong to Christ is a church where people meet together. We should look forward to meeting together. We should look forward to this every Sunday more than anything else. Us here worshiping the risen Lord of the universe, here gathering to proclaim his majesty, to sing of his glory, to enjoy him fully. We shouldn't let anything squeeze that out. Number five, what does a church, what should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? Number five, it's a people who make teaching and doctrine a priority. Look at the second half. Look at verse 25 again. It says, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. What did their gatherings consist of? It consisted of teaching. Barnabas and Saul pastored this new church in Antioch and the best way they could pastor them was to teach them. To teach them doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, this is Paul challenging his protege, Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I love that passage. It tells us to preach and to teach. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the church. Paul also tells the church in Colossians, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching has always been a vital part of what makes God's people a true church that reflects Christ. Discipleship must happen if we are to be a genuine disciple. And discipleship requires teaching. And that's why we put an emphasis on teaching and on preaching and on disciple making at Harbin's. It influences every decision we make, including curriculum we choose for Rewind. We don't just pick something because it's fun. I, I'm, a, I'm a former children's pastor. I love fun. I love giving children lots of fun things to do. But one of the challenges I had as a children's pastor was looking through the curriculum. And, and, it was, and some of it had just tremendous creativity and a lot of fun. But it was so shallow on the teaching. And I struggled with that when I was in children's ministry, and I struggle with it today. And so we found recently a very good children's curriculum called Generations of Grace that fits hand in glove with who we are as a church, and we're going to implement that later. But the reason Deemer and I liked it so much is because it had strong teaching. It had powerful teaching. Teaching is important for a church, and it has to be a priority in a church that wants to look like Christ Jesus. Number six. What should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? It's a people marked by sacrificial generosity. In verse 27, it talks about how a, a, a prophet came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. In verse 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. By the way, that can be attested to uh, through other um, literature as well. Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, and Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, both speak of this same famine. But here, it's predicted by this man named Agabus. Verse 29, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. We've already seen this in Acts. The mark of a true church is a church that's generous, a church that's willing to sacrifice to help others out. We saw in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 that the people would sacrificially sell what they had to meet the needs of others. The unity of the church can often be measured by its generosity. The unity of a church can often be measured by its generosity because we don't view anything as my own. This isn't mine. It belongs to all of you, and therefore I'm willing to give it up. That's a church that's truly unified. And that's a church that reflects Christ. The church in Antioch demonstrated this. So did other New Testament churches like the church in Macedonia. The Macedonian churches that we read of in 2 Corinthians 8.1. It says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. The grace of God. One of the ways that God shows his grace in a church, that people should be able to see God's grace in a church, is through sacrificial giving. We want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now that's a church. A church where people are begging to give more money. All right? People are just saying, I want, please. And, and you know, I can imagine Paul saying, wait a second, you guys are poor. You're impoverished. You guys are in, a, in severe affliction. And they're coming and saying, no, please let us give more. And that's a church that is really marked by sacrificial generosity. That's a church when people see that, they see that's, that's God's grace at work. Because people don't go around begging to give money all that much. They may beg to get money, but not to give money. That's the grace of God at work. And so we always have to ask the question, how are we doing here? Are we generous? Are we sacrificial? We can always do better. I know um, that I'm praying for my family that we can be more sacrificial in 2010. And, uh, and I, I, you know, in our culture, which really is a culture of luxury and, and, and excess, we can all find ways to be more sacrificial. Finally, what should a church that is truly a people that belongs to Christ look like? The last point today is this. It's a people out of whom ministry leaders emerge. And you may not be able to see that in this passage here, but I want just to pay close attention to the last verse. So they, they collect this money, and in verse 30 it says they want to send it to, to Jerusalem. So it says, and they did so Sending it to the elders, the elders in the Jerusalem church, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Who did they send to take the money? They sent their two pastors to send the money, to take the money to Jerusalem. This wasn't an overnight trip and coming back. They sent them. They were going to be gone for a while. And then in verse 13, they send them out on a missionary journey around the globe, the known globe at that time that was going to take three years. So there's something about this church in Antioch. They're not afraid to let go of their leaders. Because it's a church where leaders emerge. We see in, in, in Acts chapter 13 that there's elders who lay their hands on, on Paul and on Barnabas as they send them out. It's a church where leaders emerge. I believe that a good, solid, healthy church is a church where leaders emerge. Unfortunately, churches in America, normally the way we find pastors is more like a, 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 the model of the way businesses work. We send out headhunters to find a good pastor for our church. That's not how the Bible says you find pastors. The Bible says you should have strong enough teaching and doctrine in a church that leaders emerge. My desire, if God were ever to call me away from this church and ever to call Deemer away from this church, that, that there's leaders emerging in this church and there's the future pastors sitting out here in this congregation right now. That's what I believe a true biblical church does. It sees leaders emerge in its body. And we see that in the church in Antioch. So I want us to conclude here. I want us to see this church in Antioch and what it becomes. It becomes the new center of global evangelizations and missions. Matter of fact, for the next several centuries, there's four main centers of Christianity. One is in Rome. One is in Jerusalem. One is in Alexandria. And the fourth one is in Antioch. This becomes a powerful church for centuries. They become the church where missionaries are going out of. Because they're a church with people who behave and act in a way that when people look at them, they can truly say they belong to Christ. Antioch was a church whose true colors shone, their true loyalty. Everybody looked at them, they know who they belong to. They were indeed Christians who belonged to Christ. When people look at us, Harbins, when they look at us individually, what do they see? Do they see who we belong to? Do they see Andy written on the bottom of our foot? Do they see Jesus written on us? Do they see that we belong to him? That's the question.
When you're at work, do people know that you're a Christian? Or is it secret? This church, do people know that we represent Christ above everything else that we do in the community? That's the question. Are we a people who belong to Christ? Do we look like that? Let's bow our heads and let's pray as we close. And as you've got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to remind us that this response time is for all of us. Respond by bringing your offering if that's what God leads you to do. Respond by bringing a prayer request or taking one of the prayer requests out to be praying for. Respond by coming up here and talking to me or Deemer if you need to about a spiritual decision you need to make in your life. But this is a time for everybody in here to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would just be with us, Lord. Guide us in all that we are to do the rest of this day so that when we go out into the community, when we leave these doors right here, we know that we're going into a world very similar to the, to the city of Antioch. A melting pot of, of ideas and a melting pot of cultures and religions. And God, I pray that we would stand out like a sore thumb. That people would look at us and say, yeah, that person's different. That person is someone who, who truly represents Christ. They belong to Jesus. And so, I pray, Lord, that you would put into each one of our hearts a desire, give us the grace to be people who are unashamedly Christ-centered in all that we do. So now, Lord, as we sing these songs to you, as we bring these offerings, as we respond to you, we pray, Lord, that you hear us, that you would receive these gifts, and, Lord, that you'd be greatly glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.